The following selections and tracks are from a book called Practical Truth by Archibald Alexander, pastor and theologian. The book has been out of print for many years and it is the purpose of the narrator to make it available again to the public by narrating it on tape for the chapel library. Answer to Prayer, Long Deferred Half a century past, the writer was accustomed to frequent places of worship where the houses were situated in a grove, or rather in the midst of trees of a dense forest, and far from any human habitation. Although the meeting houses, as they were then called, were frequently unfurnished, a mere shell without ceiling, yet there was a solemnity in these places of worship which was better adapted to promote devotion than all the most splendid achievements of architecture. No somber light let in through painted windows ever affected my mind like the solemn shade and stillness of the natural growth of the forest. On a certain occasion, when the Lord's Supper was about to be solemnized in one of these humble churches, I went early that I might avoid the conversation and dust of the multitude on the road and might have an opportunity of solitary meditation under the venerable trees which encompassed the house of prayer. I thought surely that I should be first on the ground, but I was mistaken. I saw an elderly gentleman, who had just secured his horse to a bow of a tree, coming towards the house to meet me, and upon his nearing me I recognized an old acquaintance, at whose house I had lodged in my journeyings more than once. He had formerly been an elder in a Presbyterian church of some note, but had removed into a neighborhood where there were then scarcely any Presbyterians. Traveling ministers, however, often called upon him and preached in his house or at some place in his vicinity. As I believed him to be a very pious man, well informed and zealous for the truth, I was pleased to meet with him and hold communion with him. After some general remarks, we got upon the subject of the efficacy of prayer. And as I was young, and he was aged and experienced, I was glad to throw the burden of the conversation on him and he was not unwilling to speak on a subject which seemed to lie near his heart. In the course of conversation, he related to me a piece of his own experience. He said that his oldest son, who was a lawyer of some eminence, had as unblemished a moral character as any man in the land, and yet, though respectful to religion, he had never manifested any serious concern about his own salvation. But, said he, I have had such nearness of God and much liberty in prayer for his conversion that I believe those prayers will be answered in due time, whether I live to see it or not. Indeed, said he, on one occasion I am persuaded that God gave me an assurance that my prayer in his behalf would be answered. This, I confess, appeared to me somewhat like enthusiasm, but I made no reply, and soon our conversation was terminated by the gathering of the people. I thought, however, that I would remember this matter and from time to time make inquiry respecting the person whose conversion was so confidently expected by his father. Soon after this, the old elder was gathered to his fathers and died in faith and peace. But residing far from his abode, I know not the particular exercises of his mind as he approached the borders of the other world. 
For some years I forgot the conversation and made no inquiry, but some person who was acquainted with the family informed me that after his father's death, this son fell into habits of intemperance, that, in fact, he became a mere sot remaining at home and stupefying himself with alcoholic drinks every day. Such a case appeared to me nearly hopeless. I had seldom known a man thus brought under the power of strong drink to recover himself. I now thought that the good old father had been deluded by a lively imagination. And for many years every report respecting the son seemed to render the case more hopeless. But behold the truth and faithfulness of a prayer hearing God. See an example of the efficacy of fervent and importunate prayer, though the answer was long deferred. This man, after continuing in intemperate habits until the age of 70 or more, has recently been completely reclaimed and not only delivered from that vice, but soundly converted to God. He not only gives evidence of a change, but appears to be imminent in the practice of piety. If now living, and I have not heard of his decease, he must be about 80 years of age. How wonderful are the ways of God! His faithfulness never faileth. It reaches unto the clouds. Thy faithfulness is unto all generations. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for His goodness and for His wonderful works to the children of men. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come. It will not tarry. Habakkuk 2, verse 3. Let pious parents learn never to give over praying for their unconverted children, however hopeless the case may seem to be, for God will in faithfulness hear their supplications and answer them sooner or later in one way or another. The Faithful Elder The following sketch is from memory and it relates to the last century. J.L. was the son of pious parents in humble circumstances. He was brought up to labor on the farm and was restrained from open vice by his religious education and by a regard to the authority and feelings of his parents. On a certain Sabbath, there being no preaching in the immediate neighborhood of his father's residence, he had formed the purpose to attend a great meeting at the distance of 12 or 15 miles. He owned a young horse on which he intended to ride to the place, but on going to the pasture in the morning to bridle the colt, he eluded all his attempts to catch him, and he was obliged to return to the house foiled, disappointed, and much chagrined. How to spend a wearisome day he knew not. At length, the thought struck him that he would take a book and go out into the woods and amuse himself with reading. He stepped to the bookcase and seized the first book which came to hand, which happened to be Doddridge's Rise and Progress of Religion in the Soul. It being summer, he sought a cool, shady, and sequestered spot where he lay down and began at the beginning of his author. And there is reason to believe that the Holy Spirit accompanied every truth which engaged his thoughts with a divine influence. For, as he assured the writer, he was deeply convinced of sin on reading the first chapters. And when he came to the expiation of Christ and the method of salvation, the whole plan was open to his believing mind, and he deliberately embraced the Savior as offered in the gospel and was filled with peace and joy. Thus, this young man went out into the woods in an unconverted and condemned state, and in a few hours returned a renewed man, freely justified by the grace which is in Christ Jesus. In due time he entered the communion of the church, 
and became an active, zealous professor at a time when great lukewarmness had taken possession of the church. He married an intelligent woman who by the force of his example and instructions embraced religion and became as zealous and more communicative than her husband. They lived happily and were blessed with three sons and two daughters. About middle age, he was elected a ruling elder in the church to which he belonged, and in this office he received grace to be faithful. He held up the hands of his minister and defended his character from calumnies attempted to be heaped upon him. He visited the poor and contrived methods of relief wherever there was sickness. J.L. was to be found sympathizing with the sufferers and offering up fervent prayers for the recovery of the sick and for a blessing on the rod of affliction. By this means, prayer was introduced into families where the voice of supplication had never been heard. The writer, when a boy, had an awful dread of this man and shunned him for fear he would speak to him about religion. But a little sister being very sick, he was pleased to see this faithful man come to the house. He sympathized and advised with the parents and spent the night in watching with the sick child. But what affected almost was his prayer, so fervent, so affectionate, so appropriate, it was felt as if surely the Lord would hear and answer such a prayer. When few professors kept themselves unspotted from the world, this man and his wife stood firm in their adherence to truth and duty. Worldly amusements were introduced by some influential professors, strict religion was scorned, and the liberal professor was lauded. But our elder could not be moved to favor dancing and cards. He set his face resolutely against all such practices as inimical to the spirit of true religion. He faithfully warned professors against the deadening influence of these innocent amusements, as they were called, and when private exhortation and remonstrance failed, he had the fidelity to present the cases of such professors to the session to be dealt with as acting inconsistently with their Christian profession. This exposed him to a load of obloquy, and he was clamored against as an enemy of all cheerfulness and enjoyment. Some ministers also took sides against him, and their opinions and example were published by multitudes who never remembered any of his pious sayings. J.L., however, went on his course unmoved, and though hated and dreaded by the wicked, whenever anyone became serious, he was immediately sought out, and his counsel and sympathy and prayers were always cheerfully bestowed. The state of religion in the land seemed to grow worse and worse just after the close of the Revolutionary War until he and his wife and a few others seemed to be left alone. But even in this time, the presence of this tall, gray-headed elder was striking awe into the minds of the most careless. One day he had business with a man who was at a dancing party in a private house, and when he approached the house, consternation seized the company, and at once the fiddling and dancing ceased. He, however, administered no reproof to the company, but transacted his business and departed. It pleased a gracious God about the year 1789 to revive religion with extraordinary power in all the country around where he lived. It was what he had prayed for night and day, but scarcely hoped to see, for he had never before witnessed what is called a revival. Almost his whole time was now spent in conversing with the new converts. I've known him often to ride six or seven miles to see persons under religious impressions, and he would labor with them in the most earnest and affectionate manner, and would bring to them suitable books, for he was much conversant with the most spiritual and experimental authors. Many were deeply indebted to his faithful labors, and none more than the author of this article. The Elders 
eldest son. Perhaps there never existed since the fall a family in which there was less to corrupt youth than that of the faithful elder notice in a former number of the messenger, the last article. In this family there were no servants, but the elder's wife performed all the work of the house, except that when sick or unwell, some woman of good character from among the neighbors assisted her. And the elder himself did the whole work of the farm, except in the more busy seasons when a man was hired for a few days. In this house, purity, peace, and order prevailed. As soon as the children were capable, their aid was used both in the house and out of doors. The oldest child was a son, a fine, healthy boy, large and handsome. This boy was carefully instructed in the principles of religion, both by his mother and father, and he appeared remarkably docile, and learned so well that his parents felt a strong desire to devote him to God in the work of the holy ministry, if it should please God to make him an early subject of his grace, for which blessing they ceased not to pray daily. When the boy had arrived at the age of sixteen or seventeen years, it was thought advisable to send him to an academy at no great distance to commence a course of liberal education under an approved teacher, a man of piety as well as learning. And it was hoped that the young man's morals would be safe, as he would board in the house of an aunt who lived near the academy. The youth had scarcely ever lodged out of his father's house in his life, and had never been exposed to any temptations from bad company, and was perhaps as innocent as any of Adam's children in a natural state. He had, however, much natural susceptibility of impressions from without, and a sociable disposition. At this time, there were some young men in the academy who belonged to wealthy irreligious families, and from their parents and the company which frequented their houses, they had imbibed the spirit of hostility to religion, and had picked up some objections to the Bible, and learned to make a jest of sacred things. These young men, as soon as the elder son entered the school, determined to do what they could to seduce him from the path of morality and innocence. They began by throwing out hints and innuendos against revealed religion and expressing pity for such as were held under the restraints of religion or were conscience-bound as they expressed it. These ideas were entirely new to the elder son, and he drank in the poison greedily, for he had a strong inclination to sinful indulgences, which was only restrained by his religious education. These skeptical opinions were exceedingly agreeable to his corrupt nature, but he wanted more conviction that these objections to Christianity had a solid foundation. He therefore sought for books which would have the effect of confirming him in his infidelity, and the works of Hume, Voltaire, and others were obtained by means of the young men before mentioned. And being now in a great measure free from the restraints which had been on him, he rushed forth into a course of dissipation and licentiousness, in emulation of his new comrades. Indeed, it was not long before he went beyond any of them in boldness and sinning. Those who become vicious in opposition to the restraints of a religious education commonly run to greater lengths than others in transgression because the strength of passion necessary to overleap this barrier is sufficient to drive them on far in the path of iniquity. For some time he was careful to conceal his irregularities from his parents, but ere long this was impracticable, and he began to appear boldly in the ranks of the greatest transgressors. He was a leader and corrupter of others, and seemed to have lost all sense of religion and to be confirmed in his infidelity. It is impossible to describe the disappointment and anguish of his pious parents. 
They could do nothing for him but weep and pray in secret. The young man had gone on this way for several years, growing worse and worse, until his character was ruined and all decent people shunned his company. About this time a young man, a cousin of his, came in from the west where he lived for some time and had recently experienced a great change. He had also been very wild and having been somewhat suddenly converted, he was full of zeal and spoke freely to his old acquaintances of the necessity of religion and did not neglect the elder son to whom he addressed himself in a very earnest but affectionate manner and it was apparent that his example and solemn exhortation produced some impression. As he was now on his way to college, he asked the elder son to accompany him and bring back his horse. Indeed, the plan was secretly agreed on between his cousin and his father to get him to go, for at that time a powerful revival was in progress in the college and vicinity, and the father being acquainted with the president of the college, wrote him a full account of his son's unhappy state of mind and entreated him to try to bring him off from his infidelity. This letter he did not put into the hand of his son, but of his cousin, with the request that he would not let his son know that he had written. The Reverend President, on receiving this letter, invited both the young men to his house, and after some general remarks, he commenced the conversation on the subject of the causes of the prevailing infidelity, and took up in order the arguments of deistical writers. He refuted them with a clearness and a forth which overset the system which the elder son had long been building up. He never hinted that he had any suspicion that the young man belonged to this unhappy class, and indeed directed his discourse mainly to his cousin. The device answered the purpose intended. The young man not only renounced his infidelity, but fell under deep conviction before he returned home. What a comfort to his pious parents! His mother had always entertained a confident hope of his conversion, and her prayers were about to be answered. It was some time before the young man could be persuaded to entertain any hope that his sins could be pardoned. He evidently felt that he was a chief of sinners. Never was a change more manifest in outward appearance. He now became deeply serious at all times, and under the impression of his exceeding wickedness, he seemed little disposed to go into company of any kind. After much prayer and deliberation, he felt constrained to think it a duty to enter the holy ministry. But before he commenced the study of theology, he undertook to teach a classical school for a year. He had scarcely commenced his school when he was seized with a violent, bilious fever. His case from the first was considered dangerous. His parents made haste to see him, though he lay at a considerable distance from their residence. While the issue hung in doubt, the father, a man of strong mind and sober principles, suffered one of those hallucinations to which pious persons are sometimes subject. Having been earnestly pleading with God for the life of his son, the text of Scripture, This sickness is not unto death, was impressed so forcibly on his mind that he was fully persuaded that this was an answer to his prayer and rejoiced in the prospect of receiving his firstborn from the verge of the grave. But, alas, the young man in the midst of his days was cut down. Thus again the hopes of these good people were sadly disappointed, but there was now comfort mingled with their sorrow, for they had hope in his death. Walking by faith, not by sight. This is selected from Richard Baxter by Archibald Alexander. Even in worldly manners you will venture upon the greatest costs and pains for the things that you see not and never saw. The merchant will sail a thousand miles for a commodity that he never saw. 
Must the husbandman see his harvest before he plow his land and sow his seed? Must the sick man feel that he has health before he use the means to get it? Must the soldier see that he hath a victory before he fights? Hath God made man for any end? No reason can expect that he should see his end before he begin to travel towards it. When children first go to school, they do not see or enjoy the wisdom and learning which by time and labor they must attain. To look that sight, which is fruition, should go before a holy life, is to expect the end before we will use the necessary means. Shall no man be restrained from felony or murder, but he that sees the assays or the gallows? It is enough that he foresees them, as made known by the laws. Till a light appear to your darkened souls, you cannot see the reason of a holy heavenly life, and therefore you think it pride, hypocrisy, fancy, or imagination, or the foolishness of crack brain self-conceited men. If you saw a man do reverence to a prince, and the prince himself were invisible to you, would you not take him for a madman, and say that he cringed to the chairs, or bowed to a post, or complimented his shadow? If you saw a man's actions in eating and drinking, and saw not the meat and drink, would you not think him mad? If you heard men laugh and hear not so much as the voice of him that gives the jest, would you not imagine them to be brain sick? If you see a man dance and hear not the music, if you see a laborer threshing or reaping or mowing and see no corn or grass before him, if you see a soldier fighting for his life and see no enemy that he spins his strokes upon, will you not take all these men for distracted? Why, this is the case between you and the true believer. Do you fetch your joy from earth or heaven? from things unseen or seen, things future or present, things hoped for or things possessed. What garden yieldeth you your sweetest flowers? Whence is the food that your hopes and comforts live upon? Whence are the cordials that revive you when a frowning world does cast you into a swoon? Where is it that you repose your soul for rest when sin or sufferings have made you weary? Deal truly, is it in heaven or earth? Which world do you take for your pilgrimage and which for your home? I do not ask where you are, but where you dwell. Not where are your persons, but where are your hearts. In a word, are you in good earnest when you say you believe in a heaven and a hell? And do you speak and think and pray and live as those that do indeed believe these things? Do you spend your time and choose your condition of life and dispose of your affairs as a man that is serious in his belief? Speak out. Do you live the life of faith on things unseen, or the life of sense on the things you behold? Deal truly, for your endless joy or sorrow doth much depend upon it. The life of faith is a certain passage to the life of glory. The life of sense on things here seen is a certain way to endless misery. Can you forget that death is ready to undress you and tell you that your sport and mirth are done and that now you have had all the world can do for them to secure it and take it for their portion? How quickly can a fever or one of a hundred messengers of death bereave you of all that earth afforded you and turn your sweetest pleasures into gall and turn the Lord into a lump of clay? It is but as a wink, an inch of time, till you must quit the stage and speak and breathe and see the face of man no more. If you foresee this, oh, live as one that does foresee it. I never heard of any that stole his winding sheet or fought for a coffin or went to law for a grave. 
And if you did but see how near your honors and wealth and pleasures do stand to eternity, as well as your coffin and winding sheet, you would then desire and value them as you do these. Oh, what a fading flower is your strength! How will all your gallantry shrink into the shell? If these things are yours, says Bernard, take them with you. It is awful for persons of renown and honor to change your palaces for graves and turn to noisome rottenness and dirt, to change your power and authority for impotency, unable to rebuke the porous worm that feedeth on the hearts or faces. Princes and nobles, you are not the rulers of the immovable kingdom, but of a boat that is in a rapid stream, or a ship under sail that will speed both pilot and passengers to the shore. I am a worm and no man, said a great king. You are the greater worms, and we the little worms, but we must all say with Job, the grave is our house. The greater are your advantages, the wiser and better should you be, and therefore should better perceive the difference between things temporal and eternal. It is always dark where these glowworms shine, and where a rotten post doth seem a fire. Write upon your palaces and your goods that sentence, Seeing all these things must be dissolved, what manner of persons ought we to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God? Value of a good book, a tract by Alexander. When we consider how much good has been done by the published works of such men as Baxter, Owen, Doddridge, Elaine, Boston, Edwards, and so on, we wonder that men gifted with a talent for writing attractively and powerfully do not devote more of their time to the preparation of good books. But although in theory we acknowledge the all-pervading power of the press, yet the importance of the subject is not practically felt in all its momentous consequences. The man who is enabled to write a truly evangelical and useful book, or even a single track of first-rate excellence, may convey the saving truth of the gospel to a thousand times more persons than the living preacher can ever instruct by his voice. And hundreds of years after the death of the writer, the production of his pen may be but just commencing its career of usefulness, only to be terminated with the end of the world. Those men, therefore, who are blessed with the ability of producing one work of evangelical excellence may be considered among the most highly favored of our race and must enjoy a rich reward hereafter. To plan of first publishing important views of evangelical truth from the pulpit and then from the press, with such changes as may serve to render them more popular, is a wise economy of time. And considering the incalculable power of the press, more of our learned and eloquent preachers should avail themselves of this method of benefiting the public by diffusing abroad the precious truth of the gospel. A Great Truth Eve of Great Events In vain do we seek to awaken our church's zeal for missions as a separate thing. To be genuine, it must flow from the love to Christ. It is when a sense of personal communion with the Son of God is highest that we shall be most fit for missionary work, either to go ourselves or to stir up others. If we allow it to become a business of dollars and cents, we shall see no results. Fine preachers of David Brainer's spirit, said John Wesley, and nothing can stand before them. But without this, what can gold or silver do? 
Let gushing affection to the Lord Jesus Christ become the ruling passion, and it communicates the thrill of evangelical zeal to every member of the electric chain. A church of such ministers, of such members, would be an apostolic, a heavenly church. The impression is general that we are on the eve of great events, a cloud in pins, perhaps of mingled evil and good. It is an expectation which is solemn and emboldening. It leads a man to say, Away with trifles, I must abandon all that is frivolous. Life is short. A great work is before me. I must gird myself. I must pray more. It must affect men in their relations as associated. We are on the eve of great things. Therefore, let us be sober. Let us be vigilant. Let us be active. Let us be at peace. Let us live for Christ. This track is called William Wirt and the Blind Preacher. The power of religion in promoting happiness in this life and in disarming death of its terror has seldom been more beautifully illustrated than in the example of William Wirt, Attorney General of the United States. When a young man just commencing his professional career, he was distinguished for his genius, his eloquence, his fascinating powers of conversation, and his polished manners. In every circle his society was courted. Fond of pleasure and the center of attraction of every convivial party, he was living for the joys of this short life and was in great danger of being engulfed into that vortex of worldliness and fashion where so many thousands have perished. While thus living, as he was on one of his professional circuits as a lawyer, he passed a Sabbath where the celebrated blind preacher of Virginia, Reverend James Waddell, was to preach. Mr. Wirt, having no other way to pass the Sabbath, entered the humble church with the congregation. He has himself described in his own forcible language the scene which ensued. The primitive simplicity of the preacher, the subdued pathos of his tones, his unaffected piety and fervent eloquence, all combined through the influences of the Holy Spirit to touch a heart of Wirt. He felt the emptiness of his own joys and the unprofitableness of his own life. He reflected and wept and prayed, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, became for many days and nights the anxious supplication of his soul. Forsaking his thoughtless companions and his dangerous habits of gaiety, he commenced a new life of Christian usefulness. True peace visited his heart, and his benignant countenance proclaimed that he had sought happiness and found it where alone happiness can be found. He became the advocate of Christian missions, and to every object of philanthropy he consecrated the energies of his noble mind. Though necessarily called to move in the highest circles of opulence and intellect, and to encounter the temptations with which those circles are ever filled, he humbly yet fearlessly sustained his character as a disciple of Jesus Christ, and gave his commanding influence unreservedly and constantly for the promotion of piety. Revered by the community, and loved almost to devotion by a wide circle of friends, he spent his days in doing good. And when the dying hour came, hope and joy beamed from his eye, brilliant with almost celestial vision as the glories of his heavenly home were unfolded to his view. His body has long ago mingled with the dust, and his spirit has long dwelt, we trust, with the God who gave it. Such are the effects of religion, and fidelity can show no such triumphs. Who will not utter the prayer, let me die the death of the righteous, and let my last end be like his?
Why will you die? This question seems strange, as it is appointed unto men to die, and in this warfare there is no discharge. But there are different kinds of death. There is what is called the second death, and though we cannot escape that natural dissolution of the body, we may escape that which consists in a state of everlasting sin and misery. Misery no one ever loved. It is abhorrent to every sentient being. Sin, however, may be loved, is loved by many. They who love sin may therefore be said to choose death, for sin is the cause of misery. How strange the delusion that men could cleave to sin for the sake of happiness, for no man ever chose sin for its own sake. There is always some lure held out to entice the sinner. Our first mother sinned because the fruit of the tree of knowledge appeared to her to be good for food and to be desired to make one wise. Some prospect of good or pleasure or relief from present misery is uniformly the motive to sinning, but in every case this is a delusion. This earnest expostulation with sinners implies that there is no necessity for them to die, yea, that they cannot die unless they choose the road to death. Life and death are set before every man, and if anyone perish eternally, it will be his own fault, his own perverse choice. Oh, what a pitiable case to see so many then turning their backs on heaven and rushing on in the way that leads inevitably unto death. But do they know their danger? Have they been faithfully warned? Many have been, and yet neglect to turn from the iniquity. They do not intend to die. They think of doing all that is necessary to escape from the second death at some more convenient season. Alas, such a season to most neglectors of the great salvation never comes. Time bears them along its noiseless, rapid stream. Habits of sinning instead of becoming weaker become every day stronger by indulgence. And yet the delusion of a future escape is cherished. Oh, sinners, stop! Pause in your downward course. God calls you to turn. God asks you, why will you die? He solemnly declares he has no pleasure in the death of the sinner. Repentance or a complete turning from sin and accepting the mercy of God as offered in the gospel is the only way of escape from the second death. Omit this a little longer and your case will be hopeless. God commendeth all men now everywhere to repent. Now is the accepted time and now is the day of salvation. Oh, that you were wise, that you would consider your latter end and speedily flee from the wrath to come. The following track by Alexander is called The Almost Christian. These tracks were written for the American Track Society to gain the attention of common readers. Others of these were written for the American Messenger in the last century. The Almost Christian. The Almost Christian may have a speculative knowledge of all the leading truths of Christianity and may be able to defend them. The almost Christian entertains a great respect for religion and its professors and institutions. The almost Christian feels a strong desire to enjoy the benefits of the gospel and may often have his affections much moved and may form many good resolutions. He may indeed possess a counterfeit of experimental religion so like that it may deceive not only the man himself but the most judicious ministers. The almost Christian may be exceedingly conscientious and exact in attending on all the external duties of religion, 
as touching these he may be blameless, and in regard to zeal he may be ardent, so as to put to the blush the real believer. He may also be liberal and contribute liberally for the support of the gospel and to feed the poor. He may become a popular preacher of the gospel and be the means of the conversion of others. He may even go to foreign lands to bear the glad tidings of salvation to the heathen. He may, in short, do everything which the real Christian does and feel everything which the real Christian feels but one. He fails in one single point, and that is an essential point. He never has given his heart to God. He loves the world better than he loves Christ. That most excellent gift of charity has never been poured into his heart. His religion may be all traced to the mere love of happiness and the operations of a natural conscience, enlightened and awakened by the doctrinal knowledge of the truth. The Apostle Paul teaches that if a man without charity, that is love to God and man, should possess angelic eloquence, prophetic knowledge, and the power of working the greatest miracles, yea, if he should have zeal strong enough to make him a martyr, and liberality great enough to induce him to give away all his goods, it would profit him nothing. Such a one would, after all, be only an almost Christian. The deceitful heart of man will turn itself into every conceivable form and shape, but that of true holiness. Of this it may assume the shadow, but never the reality. Prayer, a privilege. Although God is everywhere present, yet He is invisible. He is an all-pervading spirit, yet is perceived by none of our senses. We behold His glorious works in the heavens and in the earth, and may learn something by careful observation of the general laws by which the material universe is governed. But still the great architect is concealed. As far as reason can lead us, we seem to be shut out from all intercourse with our Maker, and whether prayer is permitted would remain forever doubtful were it not for divine revelation. We are not surprised, therefore, that some deists have denied that prayer is a duty or that it can be available to the deity. Indeed, considering man as a sinner, it would seem presumptuous for such a creature to obtrude himself into the presence of a holy God. Natural religion, as it is called, is not at all suited to the wants of sinners, but divine revelation teaches us that God may be acceptably approached by sinners only through the mediation of His Son. Prayers everywhere in the Bible recognize as proper and inculcated as a duty, but it is also a most precious privilege, one of the richest blessings conferred on man. It opens a method of intercourse and communion with our Father in heaven, it furnishes a refuge for the soul oppressed with sin and sorrow. It affords an opportunity to the heart overwhelmed with an intolerable weight of misery to unburden itself, to pour its griefs into the ear of one who can pity and help. The moral effect of prayer is important. It humbles the soul and excites veneration for the august and holy character of God. But though prayer brings into exercise the noblest acts and emotions of which our nature is capable, yet it would be a grand mistake to confine the efficacy of prayer to their moral effects. Prayer, when offered in faith, for things agreeable to the will of God, actually obtains for the petitioner the blessings which he needs. 
It has an efficacy to obtain forgiveness of sins, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and deliverance from a thousand evils. Prayer enters into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. The prayer of faith is the mightiest engine upon earth. The Lord of heaven has given his word to answer prayer. He will be inquired by his people that he may bless them. God can make any means effectual, and among the instituted means for the government of the world, and the preservation and comfort of his people, prayer holds a high place. The objection that God is immutable and knows what we need has no more force against prayer than any other means, no more force than if urged against the necessity of cultivating the ground in order to obtain a crop or receiving food to nourish a body. The Christian life is sustained by prayer. By it every grace is exercised, every blessing is obtained. Without the sincere desires of the heart, prayer is nothing, it is worth, it is a mockery. He is the best Christian who prays most. As God is ever near us, for in Him we live and move and have our being, we are permitted to hold intercourse with Him at all times and in all places. We are commanded to pray without ceasing, to be instant in prayer, to pray everywhere lifting up holy hands. In prayer, there is not only an outgoing of the soul to God in acts of faith, love, and confidence, but there is an actual communication from God to the soul. Prayer is a holy converse of fellowship with God. One hour spent in prayer will accomplish more good than many employed in study or labor. Surely then, it is good to draw nigh to God. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship, 
in which they absurdly exercise themselves, would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.